Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Little Atoms on Resonance 104.4 FM, a live talk show about ideas and culture with an emphasis on ideas of the Enlightenment. Little Atoms is presented by Neil Denny, Podrick Reedy, Richard Sanderson and Becky Hogg, as well as regular guest presenters. Little Atoms actively promotes science, freedom of expression, scepticism and secular humanism. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting. Hello and welcome to Little Atoms, the first Little Atoms of 2011. I'm Richard Sanderson, back after a very, very long time away looking after children. But I'm back with uh, Neil Denny, our regular presenter, and our guest today, Francis Spufford. And uh, Neil's going to introduce him. Thanks, Richard. Francis Spufford, a former Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year, has edited two acclaimed literary anthologies and a collection of essays on the history of technology. His first book, I May Be Some Time, Ice and the English Imagination, was awarded the Writers Guild Award for the Best Non-Fiction Book of 1996 and the Somerset Maugham Award. It also inspired a Frankfurt Ballet production and a clown show at the Edinburgh Festival 2001. His second book, The Child That Books Built, was described as witty, compelling and elegant by the New Statesman. His third, Backroom Boys, was called a beautifully written book by the Daily Telegraph and was shortlisted for the Aventis Prize and longlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize. Francis's latest book is Red Plenty, which we're going to be talking about tonight. But before we actually get into the, the meat of the book, Francis, there's been, there's been a lot of debate around what this book actually is, and I've sort of seen it described as a novel of ideas, a historical novel, a, non, a non-fiction book... I'm sort of interested by this debate because, you know, there are historical novels. Such a thing exists as a historical novel, you know, so why are we not... Why is this not basically, you know, Flashman in Russia or something? You know, why? what's this debate about? It's because it's weirdly shaped. Um, yes, there could be a historical novel on this subject. The trouble is that this book is following an idea rather than a, a human story. It's full of people. I've got an enormous cast list with a helpful key to, to their Russian names at the front. And I, and I hope that the people's stories are as, are as compelling as the, as the stories of people in a novel would be, but it's really about a fairly abstract idea about um, central planning and why it didn't work. And the people's stories are kind of subordinate to the story of the idea. Whatever the word is for, for a book in which the idea is the hero, this is one of those the first sentence is, this is not a novel. Um, I don't mind if people disbelieve me, but I think it really isn't a novel. 
But it's, it's interesting that, you know, a lot of the... I've been reading some, some reviews of the book today, and a lot of them are sort of debating this idea, almost as if, like, you know, people are, people are affronted by the idea that you might want to write about history in vaguely fictional terms. It seems like people are, people are like, you know, quite, quite struggle with the concept. Yeah. Um, I've certainly had the odd review saying that, that it's a kind of a weird and slightly illicit-sounding idea. But I think that the, the edges between different kinds of writing are often where the most interesting action is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are ways we care about stories which we ought to be able to bring to stories about ideas. I mean, human beings are, are very st- animals with very story-shaped minds in some ways. And a story seemed to me to be the way to get into why ideas matter, particularly ideas in a discipline like economics, which is, which is if it's a... I'm not sure it's exactly a science, but but it's certainly an applied science. So what I wanted to talk about was not just ideas in some bare holodeck-like space where where nothing has any consequences except theoretical ones, but but ideas in lives and economic ideas have enormous power to kind of to plow on through through people's lives, causing kind of prosperity or chaos, depending. Well, let's look at the idea then. Let's let's go. What what is the idea that the novel is based on? Let, let's sort of try and sort of encompass that. The idea is the is the cleverest version of the of the Soviet hope that communism would be able to to outproduce capitalism. One of the things I wanted to get people remembering was that communism wasn't supposed to be austere. Um, it ended up being associated with kind of grim concrete failure, but it was red actually cubes. supposed to... It was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it was supposed to be read plenty. It was supposed to, to outdo capitalism at producing all the good stuff. And the feeling was, well, the idea was that an economy which you can plan all together is, is intrinsically a more rational thing than the kind of decentralised mess you get with capitalism um, or with the family of different things we call capitalism. And therefore you ought to be able to direct it a lot more speedily than capitalism towards the cleanest, meanest, neatest, speediest, most efficient fulfilment of human needs. Um, And that something as well-designed as a communist economy would, would naturally leave capitalism in the dust, limping along behind as it as it wastefully hands out dividends to rich people. There's quite a sort of elegiac feel to the book, is, and um, which is perhaps somewhat surprising for a, a book which is basically about a, a, around a, an economic concept. And I wonder if it, it, what it was that actually attracted you uh, to this subject in the first place. I mean, I can see I I grew enormously fond of the concept itself as I understood it. Um, and I wondered if it was, was that the starting point for you? Did you think, gosh, that was a great idea? <laughs> Not quite. I mean, two things are going on here. First of all, it's something to do with my age, because I was born in 1964, and I grew up in a world with communists in it, and that was part of how I understood the planet. It always strikes me as weird on some level that capitalism's rival has just vanished, that there is, there is now seemingly no other way of, of, of doing things. And the book is partly there to give a kind of account to myself of why that happened. I, I think we probably lost a bit of, of a useful critical mirror, not because Soviet communism, which was mostly a remarkably stupid system, not because it told us clever critical stuff about capitalism, but because... It constantly forced capitalist societies to to look at themselves and and examine themselves. I suspect there's been a kind of runaway complacency since 1990 and communism has disappeared. But the other part is that I began by by being interested in in plenty and some of that kind of 
lyrical quality I hope I've got in there is actually transferred from my wonderment at watching the kind of the dot-com boom very capitalist indeed, in the, in, in the late 90s, and thinking, kind of, what, is this, what is this human desire for, for cornucopias, for, for there to be so much more than enough that we don't even have to count it anymore? And then I started thinking about, yeah, about plenty in general, how odd it was to be at a, at a point in human history, which is mostly being marked by things being scarce, where people genuinely started to behave as if there were no limits anymore. And then I thought, hang on, there's, there's a little family of wishes here and they aren't all obvious and familiar and actually there was a, a communist member of the family and then I thought the interesting way to get at this is to, is to do it through the thing where the family resemblance is least obvious, where people will have to work a little bit to see that actually the Soviet story is really quite like the Western story, that there is a, there is a, a kind of a set of common roots in, in yeah. human psychology here. I'd sort of like to get to the, the root of how the, the Soviets ever thought they could really compare the two and how you can compare. So you've got, obviously, there's a capitalist system which is producing goods mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that people don't need but somehow they're made to think they want, um, whereas a planned economy is producing, you know, supposedly just about enough stuff that everybody can eat and, and, and doesn't. I'd like to know how those league tables would have, would have looked, you know, because you do talk about, you know, the... the, the Amazing growth. There was a period of time, which the book is set, where, where the, the Soviet Union was growing at a phenomenal rate. But we're still talking about a planned economy. You know, you compare it to, to the only other country in the world that was growing at a similar rate was Japan, mm. but which was being you know built on re- rebuilt as a, as a capitalist country. So let's talk about how those two things compare. One of the things that gets forgotten is that the Soviet Union was one of the kind of the growth stars of the planet in the 1950s, and people were scared of it, worried about it, endlessly editorialised about it, the same way that, that in the West people do about China now, wondering about whether it had strategic advantages because it, well, it wasn't saddled with democracy and this kind of stuff. But let me go back a bit. Capitalist economies make stuff, buy stuff, sell stuff... Um, and as you said, ironically, um, they, they, they really don't want people to think too much in terms of the difference between what they want and what they, what they need. It's supposed to be one of the philosophical advantages of a planned economy that it can do, it can do need single-mindedly and leave want for later. And that is kind of um, what the Soviet Union did in, in the early decades, in the most brutal possible way. They decided that want covered virtually all of kind of present tense human needs, kind of clothes, food, comfort, housing, any of that stuff. They, just, they put it off for decades and they reinvested the entire proceeds of their output. And it turns out that there's a kind of an early stage of industrial takeoff, which which the planned economy can do just fine and really rather well. The the bit where you build your steel mills and your mines and your railways, and you get your concrete output up and and things like that. And it was on the basis of that that they thought we can do this. We know that the next bit will 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 have to be cleverer, but but this will take us this will take us kind of all the way to the sunny the sunny uplands of, of utopia. And my book is set at the point where they start trying to add want into need and discover that there are a few problems there you you, you talk about you know this idea that there's been you know a massively fast industrial revolution in in the soviet union and they can produce as much concrete as you know as anybody could ever possibly need and you know they've got concrete coming, coming out, out of the areas. Areas. absolutely <laughs> But at what point is this going to, you know, as you said, is, is, is this going to switch over into, like, things that actually people might want rather than you know, coal, concrete, steel, which, they, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're producing masses and masses and masses of, but obviously there is limited appeal. 
<laughs> well, this is the problem they come up against, that it, it turns out to be very, very difficult to, to, to work out an order of priorities. And the more different things you're producing, the more sophisticated your economy gets, the harder it is to, to come up with some kind of ranking in order of your priorities in, in, in producing stuff. And once you get into, into wants as well as needs, it's, it's virtually impossible. Markets rely on millions of people going out and expressing themselves in a decentralised way by, by, by going shopping. And of course this doesn't correspond to some ideal philosophical set of human liberties or something. That stuff is very annoying and usually American. But what it does do is kind of give the whole economy a kind of a, an anchor in human consumption. It's not perfect, but, it, but it, it obviously works. And what the Russians couldn't do was get any of the feedback that was coming through from people's buying decisions, since people were desperate enough on the whole to buy any old thing they managed to get onto the shelves. In, in the Soviet Union, there were no salesmen, there were buying agents, because the really tricky bit was getting your hands on the stuff, not persuading anybody to pay for it. People would pay for anything you could, you could, you could manage to produce. They didn't get any of the feedback you, you get from demand in a market economy. And so, and this is where the clever bit comes in, and the bit that, that, that I found it exciting to write about. What you've got is some really very, very brilliant Soviet scientists in the 50s and 60s coming up they think with a mathematical replacement for for the kind of the price function of markets where mathematics will do the job of of giving you an index of how much your whole economy needs you to produce widget a or widget b or possibly widget c and in, and in exactly what numbers as well and there is a genuinely brilliant man called leonid Vitalievich Kantorovich, who was the only soviet citizen ever to win the nobel prize and he's like he's like a kind of Russian equivalent of John von Neumann. He's one of those polymathic mid-20th century geniuses who goes all the way from nuclear weapons through game theory to economics to early computer design. Like von Neumann in America, inventing the basic architecture of computers, Kantarevich was heavily involved with Soviet hardware design as well. And he came up with an elegant and sophisticated piece of, of maths which lets you get... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
you know, just generated from production itself some sense of, of how much all the different things you might make are worth in terms of each other. And he and his growing band of, of disciples pointed out that if they just computerised the Soviet economy and they gave it all the information it needed to, to run on, they could calculate an ever-changing set of purely mathematical prices for things which would allow them to fulfil the promise of the, of, the, of the whole planned rational thing and make a beeline for prosperity of a kind that capitalism could never match. Now, anyone who's listened to what I've just said will have seen that there are several problems. <laughs> before we... Let's talk, talk about the computer revolution in the, um, in the second half, but before we do, you mentioned this idea of the buying agent. There's a, there's a whole section in the book where you talk about the buying of a new machine for a viscose factory, so like, basically talk us through... Well, I, I, once I got to the middle of the book, I thought, this is still too much up in the air. I've populated it as well as I could. Um, I've tried to make the ideas as real and as full of human significance as I can, but I actually need a little piece of Soviet industry under glass here. We've got, we've got to see it happening, otherwise we, we won't get it. So I've got a bit in the middle of the book which talks about three levels of, of Soviet industry, starting at the top with the... You have to do this, you have to play this game fairly. So everybody is as clever and perceptive as they could be. You, you, you can't cheat by staffing it just with stupid people, because the Soviet Union was not staffed with stupid people. So you've got your intelligent mandarin bureaucrat at the top in Gosplan trying to work out what's going on in the viscose factory which has just broken one of its machines and then a level down and keeping their secrets from the guys above you've got the management of the viscose factory which have in fact sabotaged one of their machines because it's not working properly and it's screwing up their ability to get their to get their bonuses and then one level further down also not communicating with either level above you've got their buying agent, someone called a Tolkachnik, or pusher, who is out there trying to get them their replacement viscose machine um, and having a, a very bad day of it. That involves this is the of... almost Spiv-like character. He, he is. Well, he yeah. is he's a... They were real. I, mean, I haven't invented these people. Mm. And this is, this is where, in a, a mirror image economy to capitalism, things flip over and the salesman role becomes, becomes the buyer role. These, these, these guys had enormous budgets. They were personable. They lived out of their suitcases. They knew absolutely everybody's children's birthdays and their job was to charm people into, into parting with the goods so I've got this guy attempting to extract a viscose machine from a factory that really really doesn't want to produce one for him and I hope the whole thing is full of kind of nicely not irrelevant human detail but something that brings alive that how weirdly personal the Soviet economy was because it turns out that one thing that happens when you remove prices is not that you're in some ideal, abstract, philosophical world where, where need rules and want is nowhere. It's that everything becomes personal. Everything becomes a matter of connections and a matter of who knows who and, and what reason you can come up with for somebody to scratch your back, which is always, of course, going to involve scratching there. So you've got massive circular back-scratching rings stretching through the whole of, of Soviet industry, and I was, I was trying to get that alive. <laughs> You're listening to Little Atoms today with me, Neil Denning, Richard Sanderson, and we're talking to Francis Spufford about his book, Red Plenty. So, moving on then, Francis. The interesting thing about the Soviet Union is, is that you know, Marx obviously envisaged a 
revolutions happening in somewhere that was already industrially advanced, so Britain or Germany or something. But it didn't. It happens in an agricultural country. So Stalin basically almost, you know, single-handedly forces through an industrial revolution, a bit of a mess made, you know, if you ever get hurt and all that sort of thing. Million, yeah. But now we're at this point where there's the, the, there has been a an old-style industrial revolution. But of course, to com- you know, America's at this point where it's, you know, it's starting to invent computers and people are buying plastics and consumer goods and things. So we're now at the point where the Soviets want to sort of try and compete with that. A big section of the book is talking about something called the Soviet cybernetic revolution. So let's talk about what that is. Hmm. The Russians had no problem with, with inventing computers, just as they had no problem with any individual piece of, of scientific brilliance. One of the things that the Soviet economy was great at was producing physics PhDs and later on computer science PhDs. Lots and lots of wonderful work was done and and the annals of 20th century computer history are full of magnificent and often two little-known Soviet inventions, like the only trinary processor in the world, which used three-state three electronics, uh, zero, one, and minus one. Oh, um, <laughs> their problem was always working out how to, how to get this stuff integrated and applied, and it was subject to, to kind of bureaucratic oversight of a really unhelpful kind. Um, but it was critical to the whole project, not just because they had to move on up to the next step of their of their industrial revolution, because the, the whole scheme to produce a kind of more brilliant mathematical replacement for capitalism relied on, on the processing speed of, of computers. There's a, there's, a, there's a fantastic scene where there's a, a, a computer scientist that you talk about. I can't remember whether it's a real one or... Lebedev, he's quite real. real. He's, but, the, um, he's like their Babbage. You, not Babbage, what am I saying? He's like their Turing. Yeah, and you sort of say, he's, he, you put these words into his mouth that say basically... It's always got to be for something. They don't just let us play around with this stuff, which obviously would be, you know, needs to be done if if you're going to come up with, you know, different applications for for the technology. That is one. They they they, they produce wonderful machines in incredibly short runs. Then they give them to the military, and they almost never allow computer scientists just just to play with them. So they lose all of those secondary accelerating inventions that come from just being able to play. And lots of the brilliant. Soviet computer science happens in the minds of people who don't even have a real computer to do it on. It's pencil and paper stuff. It's purely brilliance kind of out of, out of the air. But now and again, now and again, there are good things. And until the sort of early, mid-60s, they're, they're pretty much on track. There are even parallel independent Soviet proposals to kind of to link all the computers together into a, a great big internetworked system which the military can use and everyone else can use, which will let people send electronic messages of some kind to each other. Um, and it, it nearly happens. But it turns out that the, the, the political obstacles of the whole system are just, are just much too, too large for it. And it fades away in the saddest possible way. And cybernetics, which... Cybernetics has this meteoric kind of life in in Soviet science. It goes from being this kind of evil bourgeois heresy in about 1950 straight through to being kind of edgy and amazing and the secret passion of Soviet scientists to being official policy, to being... Um, within about 15 years, official bullshit. They, um, Brezhnev's sort of decadent, decaying Soviet Union is still uttering meaningless cybernetic pieties into the, mm. into the 1970s. But there is, a, there is a moment in the middle there where it seems to be providing this wonderful ideology-free analytical language which lets you talk about systems. And a planned economy is an enormous interconnected system full of feedback loops. And they think, aha, we finally have, we finally have the toolkit that lets us work on our, on our system. 
this turns out to be wrong <laughs> on a number of interesting levels, which I, I took 447 pages to explore. <laughs> So, Can, sorry, I, I was wondering if um, I, don't, I don't want you to lose your flow, Neil, but I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about, and I'm going to stumble over this, Akadim, Akadim Gorodok. Yep. Um, um, which means Academyville or Academy Town. Because you make it sound like the most wonderful place. There's a, there's a really lovely central chapter in the book with the, uh, with the Zoya character in it, who's a, a immensely sympathetic. I gather from looking at the the website that you built to to go with this book that you actually visited the place, and I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what it is and and what happened to it. We're talking. This is like a sort of. I mean, it's probably not appropriate, but like a sort of Siberian Silicon Valley type yeah. thing. It, it, it was exactly that. Actually, it was the nearest thing they ever came up with to Silicon Valley. It even had the Soviet Union's only ever spin-out company in the 1960s, which was a um, the Young Communist League's independent production association which did which did custom software for people and grew so embarrassingly rich so fast that they had to stop them um Akadem Gorodok is a town for scientists built just outside Novosibirsk so it's in the kind of palmy southern bit of western Siberia not the kind of not the, not the salt mines not the salt mines um it's even green in summer although very very snowy in, in winter they they liked building. They, there were, you know, there's there's Star City for for cosmonauts. There were various towns too secret to be on maps where they where they did a, a bombs and H bombs. This one was for civil nuclear physics, social sciences, maths, and economics. Crucially, which is why it was very important to me. Um, you go there, and to begin with, you think no. Oh because you've got a lot of kind of concrete, water-stained Soviet housing in a pine wood, and you think, I came to the middle of Asia for this. Um, and then your eye adjusts after a comparatively few hours, and you start to see it through something more like Soviet eyes, and you realise that this is an amazing place. It was a kind of... It was a little deliberately created island of kind of, of free debate and intellectual excitement, and to complete the island feeling, they provided them with an artificial ocean to play mm. in. It, the River Ob got dammed just there, and there is there is a, a, a little artificial sea called the Ob Sea where they, they imported sand from the Pacific to make a beach for the intellectuals to play on, do, do surfing and water skiing and things, in the 1960s, in the middle of the Soviet Union. And by all accounts, it was the most extraordinary intellectual hotbed. It was full of specialists who had never been able to talk to each other before, who were suddenly released to have exactly that kind of ferment, the thing that they couldn't get with computers usually, where people got to play. There was an extraordinary series of kind of bits of intellectual excitement and intellectual discovery there, hardly any of which got successfully applied. So it works for me very well as an image for that kind of sudden, surprising sense of sense of possibility right in the middle of the Soviet Union, ah, which then gets closed down again. We're quickly running out of time, but just just to finish off, there's something you, re you reiterate quite a few times through the book, which seems like at a distance and, and to ourselves in the West to be utterly unbelievable. And yeah, this is, these are people that have been through the Second World War, and through the Nazi invasion, the famine, Stalin. Stalin's dead, so it's post-Stalin. But you talk about how the Soviet people were hopeful. Yeah, um, for two reasons. First of all, because their lives had genuinely got tangibly better. Um, that in 1950, Soviet citizens were wandering around in old clothes, still living in ancient czarist housing, subdivided by walls of cardboard in kind of ridiculously cramped 
circumstances. And ten years later, they were living in new flats, and the luckier, luckier of them were driving, were driving new cars and wearing new suits and um, new clothes and new watches, and their lives had been transformed. And they'd also been cut off from the rest of the world for, for ages, so they weren't comparing themselves to what was happening in America, really. They were comparing themselves to their, to the, you know, to, 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 to themselves ten years earlier. And, and by those standards, things were going pretty damn well. The other reason is that communism, no matter how terrible, even under Stalin, had always had true believers running some of it. And the official story for all that suffering was that it was that a cruel today was going to pay for a, a generous tomorrow. And they thought that the generous tomorrow was was coming they were they were a bit cynical they told jokes about all of it but in a way that you know accepted the general legitimacy of the place they were in they thought they were part of the main most important story of the 20th century and of humankind's escape from the miseries of the past into the, into into the splendors of the future um and they thought it was working they thought they thought history was on its marxist track and you know they were going to see it, or if not them, then their children. But Khrushchev promised 1980, 1980 for, the, for Russians being the richest people in the world. Um, how could I not write about that? <laughs> Francis, thanks for speaking to Little Atoms today. Thank you very much, Francis. You've been listening to Little Atoms. You can find details of upcoming guests at our website, littleatoms.com. The Little Atoms podcast is available on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.